Chapter 26 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 And while the long morning dragged itself away in economy, listening to a tale of shame, over on the bright Jersey coast the waves washed lazily on a silver strand reflecting the blueness of the September sky, and soft breezes hovered around the classic little hospital building that stood in a grove of imported palms and lifted its white columns picturesquely like some old Greek temple. There was nothing in the life he was living now to remind Billy of either Hell or Sabbath Valley, yet for long days and weeks he had struggled through flames in a deep, dark pit lighted only by lurid glare and his soul had well nigh gone out under the torture. Once the doctors and nurses had stood around and waited for his last breath. This was a marked case. The Shaftons were deeply interested in it. The boy had mysteriously brought back all their valuable papers and jewels that had been stolen from them, and they were anxious to put him on his feet again. It went sadly against the comfortable self-complacent grain of a Shafton to feel himself under such mortal obligation to anyone." But Billy was tougher than anyone knew, and one night after he had made the usual climb through the hot coals on his bare knees to the top of the pit, and come to the place where he always fell back, he held on a little tighter and set his teeth a little harder, and suddenly, with a long hard pull that took every atom of strength in his wasted young body, he went over the top. Over the top and out into the clean open country where he could feel the sea breeze on his hot forehead and know that it was good. He was out of hell, and he was cooling off. The first step in the awful fight that began that night in the old haunted house on the mountain had been won. For three days he lay thus, cooling off and resting. He was fed and cared for, but he took no cognizance of it except to smile weakly. Swallowing things was like breathing. You had to do it, and you didn't think about it. The fourth day he began to know the nurses apart, and to realize he was feeling better. As yet the past lay like a blur of pain on his mind, and he hadn't a care about anything save just to lie and know that it was good to smell the salt and see the shimmer of blue from the window. At times when he slept the sound of bells and old hymns came to him like a dream and he smiled. But on the fifth morning he lifted his light head uncertainly and looked out of the window. Gee, that was pretty! And he dropped back and slept again. When he awoke there was a real meal for him— no more slops. Soup and potato and a bit of bread and butter. Gee, it tasted good. He slept again and it was morning, or was it the same morning? He didn't know. He tried to figure back and decided he had been in that hospital about three days, but when the next morning dawned and he felt the life creeping back into his veins, he began to be uncertain. He asked the nurse how soon he could get up and get dressed. She smiled in a superior way and said the doctor hadn't said— it would likely be some time yet, he had been pretty sick. He told her sharply he couldn't spare much more time, and asked her where his clothes were. She laughed and said, Oh, put away. You'll have some new clothes when you get well. I heard Mrs. Shafton talking about it this morning when she was in the office. She's coming to see you pretty soon, and they mean to do a lot for you. You brought back her jewels, didn't you? Well, I guess you'll get your reward all right. Billy looked at her blankly. Reward? "'Gosh! Was that reward going to meet him again?' "'Say,' he said, frowning, "'I want my own clothes. I don't want any new ones. I want my own. Say, I've got some stuff in my pockets I don't want to have monkeyed with.' "'All right,' she said cheerily. "'They're put away safe. You can have them when you're well.' 
but when he asked her suddenly what day it was, she said vaguely, Tuesday, and went away. He was so tired then, he went to sleep again and slept till they brought his dinner, a big one, chicken and fixings and jelly and a dish of ice cream. Oh, gee! And then he went to sleep again. But in the morning, how many days was it then? He woke to sudden consciousness of what he had to do and to sudden suspicion of the time. Billy was coming back to his own. His wiliness had returned. He smiled at the nurse ravishingly and asked for a newspaper, but when she brought it he pretended to be asleep, so she laid it down and went away softly. But he nabbed that paper with a weak hand as soon as her back was turned and read the date. His heart fell down with a dull thud. The third! This was the day of the trial. It couldn't be. He read it again. Was it really the day of the trial? The paper that had the court program had been in his trousers pocket. He must have it at once. Perhaps he had made a mistake. Oh, gee, what it was to be helpless. Why, he was weaker than Aunt Saxon. He called the nurse crossly. She bustled in and told him the doctor had just said he might set up tomorrow if he kept on without a temperature for twenty-four hours longer. But he paid no heed to her. He demanded his clothes with a young roar of a voice that made her open her eyes. Billy had heretofore been the meekest of meek patients. She was getting the voice and manner now that he generally retained for family use. He told her there was something in the pocket he must see right away, and he made such a fuss about it that she was afraid he would bring up his temperature again and finally agreed to get the clothes if he would lie real still and rest afterward. Billy dropped his head back on the pillow and solemnly said, "'All right.' He had visions of going to court in blue and white striped pajamas. It could be done, but he didn't relish it. Still, if he had to... The nurse brought his jacket and trousers. The sweater was awfully dirty, she said, but she was finally prevailed upon to bring that too, and Billy obediently lay down with closed eyes and his arms stretched out comfortingly over the bundles. The nurse hovered round till he seemed to be asleep, and then slept out for a moment, and the instant her white skirt had vanished from the doorway, Billy was alert. He fumbled the bundles open with nervous fingers and searched eagerly for the bit of paper. Yes, there it was, and the date, the 3rd of September. Ah, oh, gee! He flung back the neatly tucked sheets, poked a slim white foot that didn't look like his at all into a trouser leg, paused for breath, and dove the other in, struggled into his jacket, and lay down again quickly under the sheet. Was that the nurse? He had to admit that he felt queer, but it would soon pass off, and anyhow, if it killed him, he had to go. Ah, oh, bah! What was a little sickness, anyhow? If he stayed in the hospital any longer, they'd make a baby out of him. The nurse had not returned. He could hear the soft plunk, plunk of her rubber heels on the marble steps. She was going downstairs. Now was his time. Of course, he had no shoes and stockings, but what was a little thing like that? He grasped the bundle of sweater tightly and slid out of bed. His feet felt quite inadequate. In fact, he began to doubt their identity. They didn't seem to be there at all when he stood on them, but he was not to be foiled by feet. If they meant to stick by him, they'd got to obey him. Slowly, cautiously, with his head swimming lightly on ahead of him and a queer gasp of emptiness in the region of his chest that seemed to need a great deal of breath, he managed a passage to the door, looked down the long white corridor with its open doors and cheerful voices, saw a pair of stairs to the right quite nearby, and with his steadying hands on the cool white wall slid along the short space to the top step. It seemed an undertaking to get down that first step, but when that was accomplished he was out of sight and he sat down and slid slowly the rest of the way, wondering why he felt so rotten. At the foot of the long stairs there was a door, and strange it was made so heavy. 
He wondered a nurse could swing it open, just a mere girl. But he managed it at last, almost winded, and stumbled out on the portico that gave to the sea a wide blue stretch before him. He stopped, startled, as if he had unexpectedly sighted the heavenly strand, and gazed blinking at the stretch of blue with the wide white shore and the boom of an organ following the lapping of each white-crested wave. Those palm trees certainly made it look queer, like Saxe's Pilgrim's Progress picture book. Then the panic for home and his business came upon him, and he slid weakly down the shallow white steps and crunched his white feet on the gravel, wincing. He had just taken to the grass at the edge and was managing better than he had hoped when a neat little coop rounded the curve of the drive and his favorite doctor came swinging up to the steps, eyeing him keenly. Billy started to run and fell in a crumpled heap, white and scared and crying real tears, weak, pink tears. "'Why, Billy, what are you doing here?' The stern, loving voice of his favorite doctor hung over him like a knife that was going to cut him off forever from life and light and forgiveness and all that he counted dear. But Billy stopped crying. "'Nothing,' he said. "'I just come out for a walk.' The doctor smiled. "'But I didn't tell you you might, Billy boy.' "'Had to,' said Billy. "'Well, you'll find you'll have to go back again, Billy. Come.' And the doctor stooped his broad, strong shoulders to pick up the boy. But Billy beat him off weakly. "'Say now, Doc, wait a minute,' he pleaded. "'It's just this way. I simply gotta get back home today. I'm a very important witness in a murder case, see? My best friend in the world is being tried for life, and he ain't guilty, and I'm the only one that knows it for sure and can prove it, and I gotta be there. Why, Doc, the trial's going on now, and I ain't there.' It'd drive me crazy to go back and lay in that soft bed like a regular sissy and know he's going to be condemned. I put it to you, Doc, as man to man, would you stand for a thing like that? But, Billy, suppose it should be the end of you. I should worry, Doc. If I can get there in time and say what I want, I ain't caring for anything more in life, I tell ye. Say, Doc, you wouldn't stop me, would ya? If you did, I'd get thar anyhow some way. The earnestness of the eager young face, wan in its illness, the light of love in the big gray eyes, went to the doctor's heart. He gave the boy a troubled look. Where is it you want to go, Billy? Economy, Doc. It ain't far. Only two or three hours ride. I can get a jitney somewheres, I guess, to take me. I'll pay up as soon as I get home. I got thirty dollars in the bank my own self. Economy, said the doctor. Impossible, Billy. It would kill you. Then I'm going anyhow. Goodbye, Doc and he darted away from the astonished doctor and ran a rod or so before the doctor caught up with him and seized him firmly by his well shoulder. "'Billy, look here,' said the doctor. "'If it's as bad as that, I'll take you.' "'Oh, would you, Doc? Would you? I'll never forget it, Doc.' "'There, now, Billy, never mind, son. You save your strength and let me manage this thing the right way. Couldn't I telephone and have them hold up things a few days? That can be done, you know.' "'Nothing doing, Doc. There's them that would hurry it up all the more if they thought I was coming back. You get in, Doc, and start her up. I can drive myself if you'll lend me the machine. Perhaps you ain't got time to go off with me like this.' "'That's all right, Billy. You and I are going on a little excursion. But first I've got to tell the nurse, or there'll be all kinds of a time. Here, you sit in the machine.' The doctor picked him up and put him in and ran up the steps. Billy sat dizzily watching and wondering if he hadn't better make his escape. Perhaps the doc was just fooling him, but in a moment back he came again with a nurse trailing behind with blankets and a bottle. "'We're going to get another car, son. This one's no good for such a trip. 
We'll fix it so you can lie down and save your strength for when you get there. No, son, I don't mean the ambulance, as he saw the alarm in Billy's face. Just a nice big car. That's all right. Here she comes. The big touring car came round from the back almost immediately, and the back seat was heaped with pillows and blankets, and Billy tenderly placed among them where he was glad enough to lie down and close his eyes. It had been rather strenuous. The nurse went back for his shoes, bringing a bottle of milk and his medicine. The doctor got in the front seat and started. "'Now, son,' he said, "'you rest. You'll need every bit of strength when you get there if we're going to carry this thing through. You just leave this thing to me and I'll get you there in plenty of time. Don't you worry.' Billy, with a smile of heavenly bliss over his newly bleached freckles, settled back with dreamy eyes and watched the sea as they were passing swiftly by it, his lashes drooping lower and lower over his thin young cheeks. The doctor, glancing back anxiously, caught that look that mothers see in the young imps when they are asleep, and a tenderness came into his heart for the staunch, loyal little sinner. Dr. Norris was a good scout. If he had got a soft snap of a job in that Shafton hospital, it was good practice, of course, and a step to really big things where he wouldn't be dependent upon rich people's whims, but still he was a good scout. He had not forgotten the days of the grasshopper, and Billy had made a great appeal to his heart. He looked at his watch, chose his roads, and put his machine at high speed. The sea receded, the Jersey pines whirled monotonously by, and by and by the hills began to crop up. Off against the horizon, Stark Mountain loomed, veiled with a purple haze, and around another curve economy appeared, startlingly out of place with its smug red brick walks and its gingerbread porches and plastered tile bungalows. Then, without warning, Billy sat up. How long had that young scamp been awake? Had he slept at all? He was like a man, grave and stern with business before him. The doctor almost felt shy about giving him his medicine. "'Son, you must drink that milk,' he said firmly. "'Nothing doing unless you drink that.' Billy drank it. "'Now where?' asked the doctor as they entered the straggling, dirty little town. "'That red brick building down the next block,' pointed Billy, his face white with excitement, his eyes burning like two dark blue coals. The big car drew up at the curb, and no one there to notice, for everybody was inside. The place was jammed to the door. Cherry had come back late after lunch, her hat awry and signs of tears on her painted face. Her eyes were more obviously frightened, and she whispered a message which was taken up to Mark. Mark lifted a haggard face to hear it, asked a question, bowed his head, and continued listening to the cross-examination of a man who said he had heard him threaten to kill Dolph the week before the murder down at Hag's Mills. When the witness was dismissed, Mark whispered a word to his lawyer. The lawyer spoke to the judge, and the judge announced that the prisoner wished to speak. Every eye was turned toward Mark as he rose and gave a sweeping glance around the room, his eyes lingering for just a shadow of an instant, wistfully on the faces of the minister and his wife, then on again as if they had seen no one, and round to the judge's face. It was just at this instant that Billy burst into the room and wedged his way fiercely between elbows, using his old football methods, head down and elbows out, and stood a moment breathless, taking it all in. Then Mark spoke. "'Your Honor, I wish to plead guilty to the charge.' A great sigh like a sob broke over the hush in the courtroom, and many people half rose to their feet as if in protest, but Billy made a dive up the aisle— self and sickness forgotten, regardless of courts or law or anything, and stood between the judge and Mark. "'It ain't so, and I can prove it!' he shouted at the top of his lungs. The prosecuting attorney rose to a point of order like a bulldog snapping at his prey. 
The sergeant-at-arms rushed around like corn popping off in a corn popper, but Anthony Drew whispered a word to the judge, and after order was restored, Billy was called to the witness stand to tell his story. Dr. Norris, standing squeezed at the back of the room looking for his quondam patient, recognized with a thrill the new Billy standing unafraid before all these people and speaking out his story in a clear, direct way. Billy had etherealized during his illness. If Aunt Saxon had been there, she was washing for Gibsons that day and having her troubles with Mrs. Frost, she would scarcely have known him. His features had grown delicate, and there was something strong and sweet about his mouth that surely never had been there before. But the same old forceful boy speech, wherewith he had subdued enemies on the athletic fields, bullied Aunt Saxon, and put one over on Pat at the station, was still his own. He told the truth briefly and to the point, not omitting his own wrongdoing in every particular, and he swayed that crowd as a great orator might have been proud to sway a congregation. They laughed till they cried, and cried till they laughed again at Billy's quaint phrases, and they enjoyed the detour. Oh, how they enjoyed that detour! Even the judge had twinkles in his eyes. For the first time since the trial began, Mark was sitting up proudly, a warm look of vivid interest in his face, the cold mask gone. His eyes dwelt upon Billy with a look almost fatherly, at least brotherly. It was a startling contrast to what he had been all day. This was a different man. Suddenly from the corner of the prosecution, the low growl which had been gradually rising like a young storm broke, and the prosecuting attorney rose and lifted his voice above all others. I protest your honor against this witness. He has mentioned no less than five different lies which he has told, and has narrated a number of episodes in which he deliberately broke the law. Is it or is it not a misdemeanor for anyone to meddle with our high roads in the manner that has just been described? By his own confession, this young man is disqualified for a witness. By his own confession, he is a lawbreaker and a liar. Aw, oh, gee, broke forth Billy furiously. Didn't I tell you I come here to tell the truth and get it off in my chest? Someone put a strong hand on Billy and silenced him, and someone else rose to protest against the protester, and the air grew tense with excitement once more. The prosecution declared that Billy was in league with Mark, that everybody knew he trailed him everywhere, therefore his testimony was worthless. He was probably bribed. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, in the story the boy had told to prove anything. Billy was growing whiter and angrier, his eyes flashing, his fists clenched. His testimony was not going to be accepted after all. It had been vain to bear the shame himself. Nothing, nothing that he could do would blot out the trouble because he had unfitted himself to blot it out. It had to be a witness who told the truth who would be believed. It had to be one with a good record to take away the shame. That was something like what Miss Marilyn said in Sunday school once, that only Jesus Christ could take the place of a sinner and make it right about our sinning because he had never sinned. It had sounded like rot when she said it, but he began to understand what she meant now. Yes, that was it. Only God's Son could do that, and he, Billy Gaston, had tried to do it himself. The courtroom seemed to be very dark now. His head was whirling away and getting beyond his control. When he looked up, he seemed to see it on the other side of the room. He did not recognize the two men in handcuffs that the chief was bringing into the room. He did not hear what the judge was saying. He had slumped in a little heap on the witness stand with his eyes closed and his hands groping together. He thought that he was praying to God's son to come and help Mark because he had failed. He wasn't good enough, and he had failed. The doctor had come with a bound up the aisle and was kneeling with Billy in his arms. Mark was leaning over the rail with a white, anxious face. 
The minister was trying to make a way through the crowd, and the sergeant-at-arms was pushing the crowd back and making a space about the unconscious boy. Someone opened a window. The chief and one of his men brought a cot. There was a pillow from the car, and there was that medicine again, bringing him back, just as he thought he had made God hear. Oh, why did they bother him? Suddenly down by the door a diversion occurred. Someone had entered with wild burning eyes dressed in a curious assortment of garments. They were trying to put him out, but he persisted. The word was brought up. Someone has a very important piece of evidence which he wishes to present. Billy's gray eyes opened as the man mounted to the witness stand. He was lying on the cot at one side, and his gaze rested on the new witness, dazedly at first, and then with growing comprehension. Old Ike Fenner, the tailor, Cherry Fenner's father. Mark was looking at Billy and had not noticed. But the man began to speak in a high, shrill voice. I came to say that I'm the man that killed Dolph Haskins. Mark Carter had nothing to do with it. I done it. I meant to kill him because he ruined the life of my little girl, my baby. There was a sudden catch in his voice like a great sob, and he clutched at the rail as if he were going to fall, but he went on, his eyes burning like coals. I shot him with Tom Petrie's gun that I found atop the door, and I put it back where I found it. You take my fingerprints and compare em with the marks on the gun and the window sill. You ask Sandy Robinson. He seen me do it. You ask Cherry. She seen me, too. She was facing the window, eating her supper with that devil, and I shot him, and she seen me. I did it. His voice trailed off. He swayed and got down from the stand, groping his way as if he could not see. The crowd gave way with a curious shudder, looking into his wild, burning eyes as he passed. A girl's scream back by the door rang through the court. The man moaned, put out his hands, and fell forward. Kindly hands reached to catch him. The doctor left Billy and came to help. They carried him outside and laid him on the grass in front of the courthouse. The doctor used every restorative he had with him. Men hurried to the drug store. They tried everything, but all to no avail. Ike Fenner, the tailor, was dead. He had gone to stand before a higher court. When it was all over, the fingerprints and the red tape and the case had been dismissed. Mark came to Billy where he was lying in the big car waiting, with his eyes closed to keep back weak tears that would slip out now and then. He knelt beside the boy and touched his hand, the hand that looked so thin and weak and so little like Billy's. "'Kid,' he said gently, "'Kid, you've been a wonder.' It was really you that saved me, buddy. My buddy. Billy's tears welled over at the tone, the words, the proud, intimate name, but he shook his head slowly, sadly. No, he said. No, it wasn't me. I tried, but I wasn't fit. It had to be him. I didn't understand. They wouldn't believe me, but he came as soon as I asked. Mark looked at the doctor. Is he wandering a little? He asked in a low tone. I shouldn't wonder. He's been through enough to make anyone wander. Here, son, take this. Billy smiled and obediently accepted his medicine. Mark held his hand all the way home. He knew that Mark didn't understand, but he was too tired to tell him now. Sometime he would explain, or perhaps Miss Lynn would explain it for him. He was going home, home to Saxe and Sabbath Valley and the Bells, and Mark was free. He hadn't saved him, but Mark was free. It was like a royal passage through the village as they came into Sabbath Valley, for everybody came out to wave at Mark and Billy. Even Mrs. Harricot watched grimly from behind her holland shades. But Billy was too weak to notice much. 
except to sense it distantly, and Mark would only lift his hat and bow, gravely, quietly, as if it didn't matter, just as he used to do when they carried him round on their shoulders after a football game, and he tried to get down and hide. Why did Mark still have that sad look in his eyes? Billy was too tired to think it out. He was glad when they reached Aunt Saxon's door, and Mark picked him up as he used to do when he was just a little kid, and carried him up to his room carried him up and undressed him, while Saxie heard the story from the doctor's lips, and laughed and cried and laughed again. The nervy little kid! He would always be a little kid to Saxie, no matter what he did. He turned over in his own bed, his bed, and smelt the sweet breath of the honeysuckle coming in at the window, heard the thrushes singing their evening song up the street. The sea had been great, but, oh, you Sabbath valley! Out there was the water spout, and some day he would be strong enough to shin down it and up it again. He would play football this fall and run Mark's car. Mark, grave, gentle, quiet, sitting beside him till he got asleep, and his mother not knowing, down the street, and Miss Lynn. Mark, you'll tell Miss Marilyn about it all? He opened his eyes to murmur lazily, and Mark promised still gravely. He shut his eyes and drifted away. What was that the chief had told him down at economy in the car? Something about three strange detectives stepping off the train one day and nabbing Pat? And Pat was up at Sing Sing finishing his term after AWOL. Was that straight or only a dream? And anyhow, he didn't care. He was home again. Home. And forgiven. Night settled sweetly down upon Sabbath Valley, hiding the brilliant autumn tinting of the street. Lynn had made a maple nut cake and set the table for two before she left for the Carters, for her mother had slipped out of the courtroom and telephoned her, and a fire was blazing in the little parlor with the lace curtains and asters in every vase all gala for the returning sun. The mother and son sat long before the fire, talking, pleasant converse, about the time when Mark would send for her to come and live with him, but not a word was said about the day. He saw that his friends had helped to save his mother this one great sorrow that she could not have borne, and he was grateful. Marilyn, up at the parsonage with a great thankfulness upon her, went about with smiling face. The burden seemed to have lifted, and she was glad. But that night at midnight there came the doctor from economy driving hard and stopping at the parsonage. Jerry Fenner was dying and wanted to see Miss Marilyn. Would she come? End of chapter 26